Welcome to the Idolcast. Hit it. Back to the old school. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. Uh-huh. Big Ben. How cute. How cute. Hey. Ho. Hey. And I just can't live in the thought I made a single pit I represent the big bound big down Willing to bring them light That in the real one makes red hole People gotta have to get the lip with that Go, ha, yo I got it full control You need a bloody heart to be too late I'm Outside come whipping the show Red tie line kicking the dub Oh, yes, right, baby, zero below You know the GD got a seat But with no more, so, so Fresh, I give you nothing less Any be any no more now I'll be the best Our opening song today is How G, performed live at Big Bang's Made in Soul Tour, April 26, 2015. The track originally appeared on the For the World EP, a Japanese release from 2008, written by Big Bang and their longtime collaborator, Perry, and produced by Brave Brothers. I like this live version because Big Bang's longtime touring band, Band 6, really lean into an old school G-Funk vibe with the arrangement. That funky bass line is everything. And the English lyrics are ridiculous, in the best way possible. Big bang gonna raise the roof, y'all. Big bang gonna raise the roof. Yeah, B-I-G to the band, we gon' rock this party. Hands in the air like B-I-G to the band, we gon' rock this party. Hands in the air, B-I-G to the band, we gon' rock this party. Hands in the air like B-I-G to the band. For those of you just joining me, this is part two of a look back at Big Bang's Made series. And I mean a look way back to the old school. When we left off at the end of part one, we'd reached 2006 with Big Bang set to debut. This was about a decade after the legendary Fathers of K-Pop, Saltagian Boys, had disbanded. And it was also approaching the 10th anniversary of YG Entertainment, the company founded by one of those boys, Yang Hyung-suk, also known as Yang-goon or YG. To give a little more context, during the early to mid-2000s, both K-pop and the Korean music industry more generally had suffered something of a slump. Thanks to both a government crackdown on industry corruption in 2002 and the cratering of album sales in the wake of illegal downloading, and the introduction of technology like the mp3 player which allowed for those illegal downloads to be played on the go. 
while K-pop agency SM Entertainment had figured out how to goose album sales numbers thanks to the opening up of the Japanese market and the reintroduction of the idol group format with TVXQ in 2003, teens and young people were increasingly moving their media consumption online. And they were moving online fast. Thanks to Korea's investment in high-speed internet access, Wired Magazine even called South Korea the, quote, bandwidth capital of the world in 2002. And four years later, in 2006, that bandwidth had only grown. Korean teenagers were online and online in a big way. An English-language interview from the Harvard Asia-Pacific Review with YG Entertainment Act Jinushan published in 2003, gives a sense of the artist's perspective in Korea at the time. Sean, quote, It's killing the industry, you know. You need to invest to get the music. But since people are downloading and not actually spending the money to buy the music, it's harder to make a record. Dot, dot, dot. Our budget for a record used to be like $10,000. But since we're not selling that much, we have to decrease that amount or will run out of business. The interviewer then speculates that the Korean market is particularly vulnerable to downloading because it's so small. After which, there's this exchange. Jinu. It's a small market, but Korea has the highest percent of high-speed networks, so that's, brackets laugh, you know, really good for downloading. Sean. We used to make two or three records a year, but starting last year, there weren't any at all. Jinu. Yeah, I think that's mostly due to downloading. This is the stitch that y'all ain't ready for. This is the stitch that y'all ain't ready for. Anecdotally, when I mentioned to my brother that I'd been listening to a ton of early 2000s Korean hip-hop preparing for this episode series, he knew exactly what I was talking about. So my brother was one of the many non-Korean middle schoolers worldwide who stumbled across acts like Jinushan on certain you know, MP3 sharing platforms in the early 2000s, thanks to the free-for-all of music pirating coming out of Seoul, right? So this is a dynamic that we'll see again on a bigger scale with sites like YouTube. So, I mean, this is anecdotal, but I think my brother's experience does speak to the fact that file sharing on the internet was a crucial part of spreading Korean music to non-Korean audiences. And I also think it shows that the predominantly Korean-American team at YG Entertainment was making music that was also accessible to American kids. But back to the story. Okay, so... 
As much as artists like Gina Sean would have preferred it otherwise, the the digital genie had been let out of the bottle in Korea. It wasn't going back in. People weren't going to be returning to album sales until, you know, till the stands get a hold of them. So yeah, so the Napster-like Korean file sharing site, Soribada, had been shut down in 2002. But people could still listen to songs for free on Bugs, which was the most popular of the Korean digital musical services, all the way until 2005, when the founder was sentenced to prison and the company was forced to cut a deal with the record labels. There was also another platform called SciWorld, which was a popular, kind of like MySpace type uh, social networking site, and that had begun booming in about 2002, and that also had a popular music component. The song that you had playing on your SciWorld page was like super important for young people in the early to mid-2000s, and Another metric in 2006, where your song was on the cell phone ringtone charts was like way more important than album sales in judging a song's popularity. And you can think of ringtones in the 2000s as the equivalent of the TikTok hits of today. And a lot of industry time and money was actually invested in that ringtone market. It was very lucrative especially in Korea, where cell phones became ubiquitous among young people, like, years before it happened here in the U.S. So here's T-Pain, quoted in an issue of Billboard magazine dated October 27, 2007. Quote, I had people at Jive tell me they didn't believe in my product and let me know that they didn't too much care. Dot, dot, dot. But selling 6.7 million ringtones, brackets for stripper in another single... I'm sprung, combined, and brackets, change their minds. Yeah, how many uh, ringtones did your fave sell, right? <laughs> so, in South Korea, the wired capital of the world, ringtones were the vanguard of the natural progression of the telecom industry fully entering the music market. So, by the time we get to 2006, these telecoms were actively working to move listeners away from free services like Bugs, and kind of the original Soribada, right? Um, and on to gated, paid music platforms like SK Telecom's brand new music rental site, Melon. And so, with the days of cash changing hands for physical albums, like, long gone, the pressure was on from the music industry to make sure that the telecoms enforced copyright standards in Korea. So a Billboard article in December 2003 estimated that in Korea, labels and music publishers may only have been getting about 20% of that ringtone revenue, and they could not let the same thing happen with these new telecom-run music platforms. Because, yeah, I mean, that is where the, the market was going, right? It was going online. Albums were essentially dead. And then, musically, in the early part of the 2000s, the domestic market had turned against lip-syncing acts and what was then called dance music, which was the genre that we know today as first-generation K-pop. Ballads, R&B soloists, vocal groups, and increasingly, hip-hop had become the dominant genres in Korean popular music. Mainstream pop-adjacent hits from hip-hop acts like 
Epic High, and a reggae duo called Stony Skunk. More on them in a minute. Sat in between songs from sexy ex Finkel singer I Hyori, and ballads by the soft rock band Buzz on television music shows. to my series on TVXQ, you'll know this part. SM Entertainment had completely revitalized the boy group market with TVXQ in late 2003. And then they debuted Super Junior in 2005. DSP Entertainment had also jumped into the boy group market with S501. And with no signs of flagging popularity for those groups on the horizon, and with TVXQ, who were kind of the the big uh, big boy group on the scene, focusing more on the lucrative Japanese market than in Korea, the time seemed ripe for another boy group to debut and grab a share of both the brand endorsements and that sweet, sweet teen girl pocket money. So again, YG Entertainment at this time, 2006, was still a mid-size independent agency specializing in hip-hop and R&B. They had bigger ambitions. If you remember from part one, our, our guy YG, he had taken all the money he'd saved from his time with Saltagy and Boys, those fathers of K-pop, and he'd gambled it on producing his own boy group and, you know, had lost everything. And he didn't come from like a silver spoon background, right? His dad was an electrician, He'd, yeah, he'd, he'd worked and worked, saved, gambled it on this group, lost everything, right? He'd come back from complete zero by partnering with a series of talented industry people, musicians, producers. Most noteworthy was Perry, who was a mixed-race rapper from Guam, and Perry's protege, an up-and-coming Korean-born, Los Angeles-raised rapper-slash-producer named Teddy. There were also the Korean-American rappers Jinu and Sean that you met earlier, and Park Kyung-jin, who was an R&B producer and head of YG Entertainment partner label, Emboat. So previously, YG Entertainment had been focused on selling albums, like literally everyone else. If you remember Jinu Sean's words earlier, though, that it was just increasingly no longer viable to rely on album sales. 
So looking for new revenue streams, YG Entertainment had turned to the export market, but also to increased commercialization, all while trying to keep the agency's artistic cred as the home of Korea's best hip-hop and R&B. So as we pick our story back up in 2006, the company had a stable of respected artists signed to both YG Entertainment and to their affiliated sub-labels, including, yes, the aforementioned Stony Skunk, who YG had signed to a new sub-label called YG Underground in 2005. Stony Skunk were a two-member reggae group, Jo Sung Jin, aka Skull, and Kim Byung Hoon, aka Eskush, who had been kicking around on the indie scene for like a few years, and they had even released an album in 2003 that had done, you know, not much because, again, nobody was really selling anything in 2003. So realizing that they needed a bigger platform to actually, like, get their music out to people, as kind of a Hail Mary pass, the duo had approached YG Entertainment with some demos for a new album. And... At the time, at least, always willing to take a bet on talent, YG had snapped them up, and Stony Skunk released their album, Ragamuffin, in June 2005, with its explosively catchy title track, a song that liked Jinushan's Gasoline almost a decade earlier, would spark a love of hip-hop in the next up-and-coming generation of Korean rappers. This was a song so incredibly catchy that even now, it lives rent-free in my brain. A little number called Ragamuffin. And yes, the lyrics do reference uh, a 420, Kush, uh, yeah, etc., etc. You get you you get the picture, right? Okay.
and Kush absolutely crush it on shows like Music Camp while dressed in like wife beaters and baggy pants with their reggae perms flying and like weed logos everywhere right alongside acts like teen singer Boa and like a whole slew of adult contemporary crooners, it was clear that the days when Soteji and boys had been forced to cut their own reggae perms before being allowed on television, those days were long gone. Hip-hop was mainstream. Friend of the YG fam, Korean-Japanese rapper Verbal from popular Japanese hip-hop act M-Flow, was apparently so impressed with the Stony Skunk album that he brought copies back to Japan to distribute, like, himself. Skull and Kush would be important links in the next generation of the YG family. Stony Skunk were a much-needed jolt of energy for YG entertainment. The big hitters from the first part of the series, Jinushan and One Time, they had either moved or would soon be moving into behind-the-scenes roles. Among the other acts on um, kind of under the YG umbrella, there's Big Mama, who were a popular female vocal group marketed in the classic blunt YG style as ugly but talented. Um, and then you had a handful of R&B vocalists, We Sung and Gummy, and there was also Lexi, who was a, a rapper. But all of them were suffering from that record sales slump. YG Entertainment had debuted an unfortunate dud of an R&B vocal boy group in 2005 called Soul Star, who were firmly in the lane of acts like SG Wannabe and something of a little brother group to Big Mama. And you know, they were talented, but like YG's attempt with Keep Six a decade earlier, the group was just a complete mismatch for where the market was. Other than Stony Skunk, the one really bright spot on the YG Entertainment roster was the multi-talented Korean usher, Seven. The Seven had zoomed into teen girls' hearts on his Heelys in 2003, and after establishing himself in the Korean market, he'd been sent off to Japan and China in 2005 to some very promising results. And with his lucrative brand deals and concert revenue supplementing the foreign album sales, um, you know, as we get into 2006, he was being prepped for a major crossover debut to America. And, you know, I think YG had good reason to believe that there'd be a market for him. Seven, Jinushan, and Weesung, who was one of those R&B vocalists, right? They'd been sent on a package tour of the United States in 2004 with stops in Los Angeles and Chicago. Um, and this was a tour with a couple of other artists from another like mid-size R&B company called JYP Entertainment. Maybe you've heard of them. And, um, <laughs> you know, judging from accounts in the American press at the time, this 2004 package tour appears to have been, like, a complete financial disaster. I think the company that sponsored it, like, went under afterwards. But it wasn't because there was no interest in the artists, right? If anything, the tour seems to have proved that there, there was an audience for Korean music in the United States, both in the Korean diaspora and, thanks to the internet, you know, remember my brother even beyond it. And as we enter 2006, the 10th anniversary year of YG Entertainment, 
a YG family world tour had been planned to kind of further test the waters. And so there were dates in Seoul, of course, Tokyo, and then three cities in the United States. So in that auspicious 10th anniversary year, with Seven now pretty much almost exclusively focused on the like global market, the push was on to debut a new act for the domestic market. And with the sour failure of earnest R&B vocal group Soul Star still fresh, YG seems to have taken a look around and decided to throw his cards all in on that teen boy group gravy train. But YG would do it with a twist, with something that had never been tried before. Hip-hop idols. And leaving nothing to chance, YG began laying the groundwork for the group that would become Big Bang months before their official debut on August 19th, 2006. In order to build interest in the group, he would introduce them to their teenage fan base before the debut through an in-house produced reality show documenting the formation of the group, something like the American series Making the Band. And crucially, leaning into where the culture was already headed, this series was going to be available where those like teenagers were online. And those teens increasingly like and not to hammer it in too hard but i will those teens weren't all in korea right like those teens were were global with this new group we'll also see yg lean into the three lessons learned of k-pop that he'd taken away from his days with saltagey and boys and that i discussed in part one of the series so number one Soteji's determination to play by his own rules, which had the unfortunate side effect of some truly nasty reprisals from the media, and something that will almost certainly, definitely, spoiler alert, we're going to see it again with Big Bang. Number two was the importance of like fashion and styling in selling a K-pop group. And number three was the importance of meeting the fans where they were at, right? In this case, paying attention to the fact that they're all online. And speaking of fans, crucially, the group, soon to be known as Big Bang, wasn't going to be starting at complete zero. So two of the potential members already had fans, because they'd already been working as part of the YG family for years, six years to be exact. And those fans were ready and waiting to be converted into Big Bang fans. Big Bang's leader, Kwon Ji Young, better known by his stage name, G-Dragon, had been a former child star when he was scouted by YG Entertainment. Slightly built, with a small face and big eyes, as a teenager he still had a very boyish prettiness, even under all the rap swagger and ill-advised reggae perms. Like many child stars and aspiring child stars, Ji Young's parents had spotted his talent in singing and dancing quite early on, and it pushed him into auditions and dance lessons. And Ji Young's parents, you know, they'd been right that their son was something special. As an elementary school student, he'd earned a place in a group called Little Rura, which was a child cover band of the popular group 
Rura. <laughs> and when little Rura disbanded, he found his way into idol training, first with SM Entertainment, and then when the young Jiyoung, along with scores of other Korean kids, became fascinated with hip-hop thanks in part to songs like Jinushan's Gasoline. He started taking classes at a freestyle rap academy before joining as a trainee at the hip-hop agency, YG Entertainment, where his precocious rap skills earned him a place on YG Entertainment star producer Perry's debut album. Little G Dragon was encouraged by his seniors, like Perry, to start writing raps himself and learning about song production. YG encouraged him to turn in one song a week as training, and the young G-Dragon would learn how to adapt and rewrite songs to suit his own style. He was 17 during the filming of the documentary series, and he just turned 18 when Big Bang made their debut. In the young G-Dragon, YG had spotted and encouraged the similarities to another teenage wonderkind from 15 years earlier. Soteji. They even look a bit alike, actually, if you um, find old pictures of, of G-Dragon, like pre-debut, like he does, he does kind of look like Soteji. But yeah, YG would explicitly encourage the comparisons in the media, which set some pretty high expectations for the teenaged GD. G-Dragon's companion, longtime companion and buddy, Dong Young-mei, who had just turned 18 in the months leading up to Big Bang's debut. He's known today by his stage name Taeyang, which means sun, to go with the cosmically, you know, named Big Bang. But at the time, he was known to young fans of the YG family by the name Taekwon. Compactly built and muscular, even as a teenager, Young Bae was another former child star. His family was one of the many that had suffered hardships in the wake of the 1997 Asian financial crisis, and Young Bae was one of the generation of kids who joined the entertainment industry in order to earn money to help you know, his family. Before finding music, he tried his hand at acting, eventually getting selected to play Little Sean in Gina Sean's Ayo video. Ayo, in 2001, before earning a spot as a trainee at YG Entertainment alongside GD. And the two were the same age, both born in 1988, which was important in the hierarchical Korean culture, and they quickly became fast friends. And they formed a rap duo, Chi Dragon and YB Taekwon, <laughs> and made several appearances uh, at seniors' concerts, and 
you know, they were fully expecting to debut as a duo, much like Gina Sean. Um, and I think they probably would have if the market hadn't taken the turn that it did, right? So Young Bay would have to switch from rap to singing as part of Big Bang. And you can hear kind of shades of that rapper Taekwon in their earliest work. And we'll we'll hear it. You know, we'll hear it as we go through the series, but you can hear Young Bay's voice like really develop from this baseline 2006. By the time we get to the end of the series, yeah, you, you'll you'll hear the growth. The year is 2002. And what we gotta do is think about the you. So this duo of elite trainees, six years into their YG entertainment career, who again already had a fan base as part of the YG family, they were a natural choice to build a boy group around. And the rest of the lineup had to, you know, the rest of the lineup had to work with them. So added to this rap and vocal, we had another vocal, Kong Daesung, stage name Daesung. He was 17 at debut. Unlike G-Dragon and the Taekwon now Taeyang, Daesung did not have the support of his parents in his desire to be a performer. Daesung comes from a Christian family, and upon hearing that Daesung had fallen in love with singing and performing, his father encouraged him to become a pastor, right? Like, this this was not an easy conflict to navigate, and it really seemed to have weighed on Daesung's mind, especially in their early days. Like, he brings it up. Um, and despite not having really a particular background or interest in hip-hop or R&B, Daesung had auditioned for and been allowed to join by his father, YG Entertainment, because his father had heard of Seven. And despite being known today for his absolutely gorgeous voice and for his incredible musical skill, Daesung in 2006 was selected to join Big Bang mainly for his smiling personality which set the template for the happy virus, smiling sunshine, K-pop boy group member for like decades to come. Although in my and many other fans' opinions, Daesung is an extremely attractive man. It is true that he is not now, nor has he ever been, that pretty boy chocolate box type idol. But he has a huge and infectious smile, which rarely flagged when he was on camera. In YG's brutal, no-frills PR style, impressed for the young Big Bang, 
you know, YG made a point of emphasizing that Daesung was not selected for his looks, all by outright saying that Big Bang was going to be a group that had fuggos in it, even though they were idols. They were still a YG group and therefore all about the music, getting called ugly in the media all the time. Probably not great for the young Daesung's, uh, you know, self-esteem, but he has powered through it and, and, and made that image his own. Um, and we'll also hear the growth of his voice as well through the years. Tall, lanky, and darkly handsome Che Sunghyun, who was the oldest of the group at 19. His stage name, Top, was given to him by Seven, but many fans in the early days would have known him by the name Tempo. Before joining YG Entertainment as a trainee, the young Che Sunghyun had built up his reputation as Tempo in the underground rap scene around Seoul, and also apparently as an aspiring hip-hop clothes dealer, according to Big Bang's 2009 group memoir, Shout the World. had been friendly with G-Dragon before debut. The pair shared a love of hip-hop music which transcended their age gap of one year. Famously, despite YG Entertainment allegedly not casting for looks, the young top had to drop a ton of weight in order to pass the trainee audition. 20 kilos in 40 days, which is insane. At YG Entertainment, you could be fug, but not fat. Like Genu Shan's Genu, Top comes from an artistic family. His grandfather was the respected novelist Sol Gunbei, and his great-great-uncle is the famous abstract painter Kim Wang-ki. A love of and respect for the fine arts has infused Top's own work from the very beginning, and Top has a deep voice and a killer sense of rhythm and of wordplay, and found that his style worked very well alongside G-Dragon's reedy tenor, more melodic rapping style, and his lyrics that were more rooted in kind of the the everyday. The two who would be known as G-Top, they just make a, just a very good contrast. So we have two rappers, two vocalists, and then there were two more trainees that had been participating in that reality show. Those true trainees were cut during the final round, but YG, with a flair for the dramatic, said that he'd give them one more chance to impress him. Jang Hyun-sung was told he was good at everything, 
but not a standout in anything. And he would eventually leave YG Entertainment and go on to become a member of the very popular boy group, Beast. And then there is Lee Sung-hyun, stage name Sung-ri, fatefully, despite having his shortcomings blasted loudly and publicly by YG, would end up joining Big Bang as their maknae, or their youngest member, third vocalist. Only 15, 15, mind you, at debut. Little Sung-hyun had desperately wanted to be in show business. He'd been part of a dance crew in his hometown of Gwangju and had come to Seoul to participate in a talent competition show called Battle Xinhua before going on to join YG Entertainment as a trainee. Not only was Sungri much younger than the others, but further marking him as an outsider, unlike the other four, he was not from the big city of Seoul, right? He was from this regional city. And it couldn't have been easy for him to find his place initially, going from being a big fish in a little regional pond in Guangzhou to being thrown headfirst into the massive soul entertainment scene with every teenage flaw on public display. Little Sung Hyun at debut was, quite frankly, he was adorable. Skinny, still very boyish, he also constantly sported a pair of dark circles under his eyes that made him look something like a panda. At debut, he was slotted quite firmly into the cheeky magne role, and there are many fans today who still fondly remember his teen cute but naughty persona, and his stage name would fluctuate from Sungri, meaning victory, to V, also for victory, before settling back on Sungri a somewhat ironic name for a kid who seemed like he was always trying too hard to play catch up with the other members of the group. And at this point, I will mention the elephant in the room. Sungri would eventually leave the group in 2019 due to charges related to the Burning Sun scandal. If you're not aware of the Burning Sun scandal, I will link to some information in the show notes. Sungri would be convicted and go on to serve time in prison for some, you know, quite serious charges. Sungri isn't the first idol to go to jail. He certainly won't be the last. An opinion on Sungri is very divisive for reasons, and let me like hammer this in right now, for reasons that are beyond the scope of this episode series, right? So consider this your trigger warning if you need one that Sungri is going to be mentioned. But I also want to note that I'm not going into the Burning Sun scandal, right? This series is focusing only on Big Bang's musical evolution through Maid. The Burning Sun scandal tends to eclipse everything, you know, when you talk about it. Essentially, if you're tuning in for gossip about Burning Sun or whatever... You may as well just turn this off right now. I mean, maybe one day I'll do a series on Burning Sun, but this is really only talking about Big Bang's musical evolution up through Made. And Sungri is a part of that, whether you like it or not. So no matter what you think of him today, I think that really in order to understand how Big Bang developed and especially how they were seen in 2006, 
when this episode is set. Just keep in mind that Sungri in 2006 is 15 years old, fresh-faced, panda-eyed kid who, you know, fresh off the bus from Guangzhou and... You know, let's leave the party-loving, opera-buffa villain, great Sungri character for future episodes, right? So, just, <laughs> just, let's just not, we're, we're just not going to deal with that. I'll link to the information. You can read it at your own leisure. Again, his criminal charges and conviction are outside what we're going to talk about here. Okay? All right. Now, let's get back to the story. Some, if not most, of the Big Bang members had been conflicted about debuting in an idol group. As I said, YG Entertainment at the time was known as the Hip Hop Agency, right? And so while hip hop idols are common today, with rappers like Mino from Winner or Zico from Block B, easily crossing back and forth between the two spheres, idol and rap, in 2006, that concept had not yet been tried, despite which you might have read in The New Yorker. <laughs> Shout out Tammy Kim. Uh, Top, in particular, was worried that debuting as an idol would mean that he would no longer be taken seriously as a rapper by his peers. To quote Top from a fan translation of Big Bang's 2009 group memoir, Shout the World, quote, my mind was a bit complicated during auditioning. Not only was I worried about dancing, but knowing that the documentary would be recording the members who would slash wouldn't make the cut, my biggest concern was, quote, I'm an idol, so does that mean I have to learn choreography, unquote. How would my seniors, juniors, and coworkers think of me now? I had mentioned to them my passion for music during my activity as an underground rapper. Would they think I'm yet another, quote, singer, following other people's footsteps? These thoughts passed through my head, day after day. And he wasn't the only one. As I mentioned earlier, G-Dragon and Taeyang had also been working towards the idea that they'd be debuting as a hip-hop duo, like Jinushan. And Daesung, bless his heart, he, like, he just wanted to sing. But doubts or no doubts... Big Bang would make their official debut on August 19th, 2006, as part of the YG Family 10th Anniversary Concert held in Seoul, and it would kick off a full court press of performances and promotions through the end of 2006 and well into 2007. Big Bang at debut were not set up like other idol groups on the market. For one thing, they didn't look or act like idols, to the point of receiving, like, scores of hateful comments calling them short and ugly, while other teen idols on the market were imitating Japanese idol Kimura Takia's very de rigor, like, fluffy, feathered hair. YG seems to have used American boy group B2K as Big Bang's primary style inspiration, Taeyang, in particular, his braided hairstyle at debut, like, strongly echoed B2K member Omarion's. Uh, 
B2K bass was added a heavy dose of self-produced YG family group one time, that's Teddy's group, who were essentially Big Bang's older brothers. And then, to all of that, you gotta have that idol. There was just a dash of TVXQ-style intra-member camaraderie and shipping. Who here loves G-Top? Am I right, folks? Leaning into the American exotic that YG had been known for, Big Bang's early sound and styling would indeed draw heavily from the urban aesthetic of American music channel BET, which, according to contemporary accounts, played, like, all the time, 24-7, in YG's offices. The bandanas, bare chests, and wide variety of hats seen in videos from acts like B2K would form the basis of Big Bang's stage wardrobe in these early promotions, something that must have pleased the aspiring hip-hop clothes salesman, Top. Although the oversized clothes really didn't help with the charge that they were all a bunch of shorties. The initial rollout of promotions for the first single marketed G-Dragon essentially as Siltagy's heir, the next big self-produced Wonderkind. G-Dragon's name was all over the track listing, and he was the only member to receive a solo track, This Love. It was an unusual strategy for a boy group, and concerns were raised among the burgeoning teeny bopper Big Bang fandom that the group was going to be nothing more than G-Dragon and Friends. And fans, you know, they weren't necessarily wrong to be concerned heavily emphasizing one member of such a young group seems counterintuitive. But emphasizing the members as individual talents from the beginning was something that would set Big Bang apart from the other boy groups on the market, and indeed sets them apart from the other boy groups on the market to this day. You know, YG himself felt compelled to address the fan rumblings in one of his periodic messages from YG, which he used to do back then. Dated August 21st, 2006, he admonished fans that, like, G-Dragon had waited six years to debut, so don't get your knickers in a twist, ladies, and cut him some slack. Essentially, don't worry, YG said. All the other members are going to get their solo songs. The other thing that fans were you know, rightly concerned about was the missing legacy media rollout for that first single. No television, no radio. If you remember back to the first episode, Solteji's mystery strategy in action, right? So YG in that same message from YG explained that Big Bang were not going to have a typical debut where everything is focused on this one big, like, physical album release, right? In keeping with the digital strategy of the documentary, rather than pushing this one physical album, Big Bang was going to be releasing a series of three singles, one a month, accompanied by an eventual seven music videos to go with them. And all of this music, all these videos, were going to be available online. And as if to really emphasize that Big Bang was not going to be a sales group, right? A couple of weeks before the physical CD single was released, August 29, 2006, the songs were released to online platforms. And the debut MV was made available 
on YG Entertainment's website. Again, remember this is in the days before YouTube was a major platform. The title track of that debut single was We Belong Together, an R&B slow jam written by G-Dragon and Teddy, and it featured the vocals of another YG trainee, Park Bomb. Yeah, baby boo. I'm always thinking about you still. Whatever you do, I'm always trust From the vantage point of 2024, the beat is kind of dated. It plugs along at this like leisurely, kind of head nodding pace. But you know, there are signs of greatness to come. We Belong Together spotlights what would become one of Big Bang's greatest strengths. The complementary verses and rapping styles of G-Dragon and the former tempo now top. We Belong Together, like Jinushan's Tell Me, has Park Bomb playing the Lady Love to the contrasting verses of G-Dragon and Top. It's, you know, it's a sweet song with Park Bomb entreating her gentleman lovers to trust and believe in her and in them as a couple or a throuple. And you can already hear the seeds of G-Top in this doofy teen love song. G-Dragon has this more melodic flow, almost riding on top of the beat while he sings about his lady love's like lips, right? While Top, on his verse, plays kind of in and around the beat, and he goes for a more philosophical verse. And there's a nice section where Top goes on this run of nature metaphors that ends in It's Like the Sea, which he just spits out like surf crashing against a rock. Unlike the song, which only features the voices of G-Dragon and Top, 
and Park Bomb, soon to be of uh, 21, by the way. Uh, the video features all of the members of Big Bang, who, in classic boy group fashion, are depicted as a group of best friends just, like, hanging out, rehearsing their dances, and, like, goofing off. And... <laughs> I mean, it's cute, right? They're all teenagers. Like, G-Dragon at one point attempts to impress a girl by showing her a pair of his Falaya sneakers and Top, despite not having a driver's license, wraps his verses while, like, driving, like, quote-unquote, a flash convertible, <laughs> which is clearly, like, hooked up to, like, a back of a truck. <laughs> it's really funny. It's a cute video. So the rest of that first single contains the party song intro, parentheses, put your hands up, written by G-Dragon and Brave Brothers, aka Kang Dong Chul and XJD, who found God in the form of a Cypress Hill CD and turned from a life of crime to a life of making beats. And Brave Brothers is, he's all over um, kind of this first era of um, Big Bang. And he has a more club-oriented vibe to his songs than Teddy or Perry. And then we have A Fool of Tears, a Korean ballad-flavored R&B slow jam, which spotlights the growing skills of the vocal line, and the video for which shows the members being extremely plaintive in the pouring rain, while dressed in white t-shirts or tank tops, and yeah, it's, it's something. Dragon solo song, This Love rounds out the single. So This Love is a perky adaptation of Maroon 5's This Love, and I'm guessing it started as one of the weekly song adaptations that G-Dragon had to turn into YG. It just has that feel to it. The closing lines of This Love, in which G-Dragon references a Jay who broke his heart, 
stirred up some intense fan speculation. So not everyone thought they were a bunch of fuggo shorties. To be fair, they are short. What I find interesting about this first single is the mix of genres, from the club beats of the intro to the slow jams, that Korean ballad flavor in A Full of Tears, and then the perky rock-based This Love with its Western flavor. Intentionally or not, I think this first single kind of gives a hint of the wide mix of genres that Big Bang would eventually play with, both as a group and in their solo work. And proving that online promotions weren't just a fool of tears, even without any television or radio, their fan community on Fan Cafe grew to 40,000 members. A September 2nd fan-signed event held at a record store in Seoul brought out a reported 3,000 fans, and a showcase event on the 15th of September brought out another couple of thousand fans. Big Bang's second single, released September 28, 2006, contained the song that is probably the most fondly remembered out of this like first batch of promotions, La La La, and this also was the theme song to the documentary series. So not only does this song have extremely endearing teen boy lyrics, with Chi Dragon explaining to the listener that Big Bang only busts with the real shit. <laughs> but La 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 features a classic minimalist, super catchy beat from Perry. And listening to it today, it's just so evocative of that early YG family sound. Do, 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 do. A musical Madeline, if you will. Simple four notes, played on keyboard just lightly hanging off the top of this rhythm track. It's, yeah, it's such a great song. And the way that that little melody interplays with the la-la-la, ugh, ugh, just perfect, beautiful. Just like classic Perry. I, 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 I like the real shit. You, 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 you like the real shit. Ah, 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 I like the real shit. Me and my cookie and all the with the real shit. We, 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 we like the real shit. You, 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 you like the real shit. Oh, my 
It's a pop delight, and really the perfect choice for Big Bang to make their debut on the assorted music shows of the era. The choreography for this song is pure teeny bopper bait, the point move of which is the members lifting their shirts to flash their abs at the camera. And again, let me emphasize here, Sung Ri, 15 years old. 15. The other tracks on the single included VIP, a quote, tough hip hop song that included a lot of like flames and faux junkyard fences when they performed it on music shows. Big And Yang's panty-dropping solo number, My Girl, a cover of the Israel Crew song, My Girl. The video for My Girl is as erotic as an 18-year-old Yang could possibly get, and features him like splayed out on white sheets and in what would become a Taeyang trademark, singing directly to the camera. Like skinned bronze, practically glowing, and his lips looking so luscious that I can only imagine a not insignificant number of girls were tempted to smooch on their computer screens. And I'm betting some of them did. lurking in Big Bang's fantastic world. Fans had noticed Daesung was having trouble reaching some of the high notes during music show performances, which in 2006 were being done without lip sync, right? 
so they could hear him. And the diagnosis was confirmed by YG in another one of his messages dated September 29th, 2006. Daesung had vocal nodules, and it would be a tough recovery process for the young singer. And again, just to remind you, he was still 17, right? That's a hard, hard road for a 17-year-old. Daesung's vocal nodules are worth mentioning for a few reasons. One, he was able to lean on his company senior, the singer Gummy, who I mentioned earlier, for support. She'd also had vocal nodules and had helped him through the worst of it. This type of support from the senior talents to the junior talents was extremely important in the early years of YG Entertainment. And as a fan, you really, really felt that this family label, it wasn't just marketing. Not at the time. Two, the fact that Daesung had developed these vocal nodules at 17 points to extreme overuse of his voice, something that I suspect came from long periods of rehearsing without proper training or proper rest. And that leads to number three, although trainees in most of the big idol companies today go through training in dance, vocals, foreign languages, etc., etc., when the Big Bang members were coming up, their training was essentially just watch your seniors and figure it out yourself. Seven has talked about it. Taeyang and G-Dragon have talked about it. In those early years at YG, you were essentially just told, okay, figure it out. Have at it, right? There are good things and bad things about this, but it's worth keeping in the back of your mind that despite the outsized reputation that the quote big three k-pop companies have today the guys of big bang did not have that type of training that is described in the infamous 2012 new yorker article factory girls okay so the young teenagers in big bang plowed ahead despite everything, through this packed October, which included a series of American tour dates for the YG Family 10th Anniversary Tour and a performance with the YG Family at TRL Studios in Times Square, New York City. During this tour, they discovered what Seven and Gina Sean had discovered two years earlier. The YG Family had fans in America. Fans. And rookie group Big Bang, in particular, was already pulling in excited American teen girls. Dozens of them showing up to the airport. Korean news accounts at the time noted that there were even non-Asian fans joining in in the excitement. Something I was able to cooperate with fan posts on forums like Simpi. In the days before global social media before social media managers on platforms like Twitter, YG Entertainment really had no way of knowing what an American fan base for an act like Big Bang would actually look like, if it even existed. All they could do was go and see what happened. So, you know, off they went. And it's worth pointing out here that those young American teen girls excited about Big Bang they were engaging with YG's online media rollout exactly the same way as their counterparts in Korea. 
Those early forum posts include girls sharing instructions in English on how to navigate GOM TV, the Korean language media player, so that they could stream Big Bang content, even if they couldn't understand it in Korean. While only Korean fans could participate in things like music show filmings and fan sign events, the online media, even fans in places like New Jersey, or Texas, California, Singapore, Tokyo, they were on equal footing with the fans in Seoul. And it's also worth pointing out here, again, that while YouTube and Spotify may be commonly used metrics in 2024, in 2006, the online media landscape was very different. Fourth generation stands, fifth generation stands. I love you, but you know, <laughs> how many Psy World uh, Song of the Months do you have? Like, right? It's these metrics are ultimately of their era. You can't really compare them across eras. YG Family Tours successfully completed, fans met and greet at the airports. The pressure was now on for that third single, which was going to be released in November 2006. But, dun dun dun, the Solitaire style combative PR strategy reared its head again. YG announced artists were boycotting the end of the year award shows for the second year in a row. Looking back from 2024, it may kind of seem like sour grapes, but you know, there was something to YG's claims that the award shows were unfair. The award shows were kind of unfair. Pressure was also being put on those award shows from multiple sources. I mean, it wasn't just YG. Other popular artists had also expressed dissatisfaction with the way that they were run. So it really wasn't YG being disagreeable for no reason, but it did mean that there would be no awards for the super rookies big bang the third part of this singles trilogy was released on november 22nd 2006 and it was worth the wait if you ask me another brave brothers penned intro victory parentheses intro lyrics by g dragon yes sir hey you ready hey what's good hey the revolution of our door The big bang Yeah, say big bang Come on, go big bang Then there was the super catchy introduction song, Big Bang. Again, lyrics from G-Dragon and Beat by Perry, which <laughs> is another one of these just like classic Perry beats with the like do-do-do-do-do. Oh, each of the members gets a verse to shine. It's a delightful song. One of my personal favorites from this early era. B to the I to the G, B to the A and G. Just said, Oh, This is crazy. Come on, everybody, let's book it down. Mr. T.O.P. Now, 
나 모두 할수 있다네 나를 믿음 바로 오늘 이 밤에 나 만족시켜줄게 나긴말 안해 보내 매라는 걸 싫어하곤 따분한 일상에 이미 찢은 몸나 하는 대로 따라해 널 이끌고 제대로 멋을 보여줄 뮤직으로 It's woe 흐르는 비트에 맞춰 너의 생각이 장벽을 무너뜨려 바꿔 시작해 one two three and four 넌 절대로 내 손을 벗어날 수 없어 That's kind of like the uh, the golden duo right there in my books. So on this third single, Daesung got his solo song with the tender Try Smiling. <laughs> track forever with you that's the letter u which was another g-dragon and top subunit song again featuring park bomb on vocals forever with you retreads the ground of we belong together but with a beat by brave brothers instead of teddy although brave brothers does use the same goofy wind chime and it really evokes a similar kind of soggy mid-tempo ballad that I personally am not a fan of. If you like it, that's awesome. <laughs> it really isn't my cup of tea. <laughs> The video for Forever With You shows the duo looking like 
cool in winter jackets with like G-Dragon's got a fur-lined hood um, and they're like rapping on top of this building overlooking the skyline importantly G-Dragon still has like this little snaggle tooth which makes him look even younger than this big age of 18 it's so like it's it's seriously so cute <laughs> but the real winner in my book of this third single is the outrageous goodbye baby lyrics credited to Yang, g-dragon and top music by perry and brave brothers goodbye baby rolls up everything good about this first series of singles into one one bombastic anthem two teen boy braggadocio it is incredible there's no big synth hook but the chorus does have something of that parry catchiness to it goodbye goodbye baby you can almost hear it being played out on a synthesizer da, 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 da. it's such a great song come on accompanying music video, which is the last in this kind of first series, is set in a warehouse with the guys participating in a full-on b-boy dance battle, which gave Taeyang and Sungri, in particular, some time to show off their dance skills. The point move of the choreography has the group all crouched down like low to the stage, and then as they stand back up, top <laughs> GD. <laughs> On the other side of Taeyang, they lift him up in the air over their heads and like have him back and then Sungri pops up in front. It's quite striking when they performed it like live on music shows and possibly the most difficult that their dancing ever got. Good job, good job, good job. The popular variety show Man One Happiness in which two celebrities compete against each other to see who could spend the least amount of money for food in a week gives us a peek into just how popular Big Bang had become by the end of 2006, which was only, again, like a few months into their debut, right? So Top was selected to be a participant, and the camera crew was tasked to follow him around for a week in December 2006. And through those variety show cameras, we, get to, we just get like this peek into their lives back then. And that peak shows us dozens of girls camped outside of the Big Bang dorms, as well as police protection required for a Busan fan sign event. Now, keep in mind, if you've listened to the TVXQ series, 
you'll remember that this end of the year 2006, TVXQ's You Know You Know had just been quite literally poisoned, um, almost killed by an anti-fan. So, <laughs> I mean, the police protection, it, it may sound like overkill, but there was just this air of, it, yeah, like there was an air of danger um, in, in 2000, the end of 2006. Like things, things had spiraled out of control in this fan, little fan world. And even though the members are still fresh rookies, they're already showing an aptitude for entertaining variety show performance on camera, which was a crucial part of being an idol in this era, this second generation era of K-pop. There's a fun sense of smap like chaos when they're on screen. Daesung, again, the OG K-pop sunshine boy, shows off just this wicked sense of timing. At one point, he pulls the cameraman over to narc on top, sneaking food. It's hilarious. And then, of course, our panda-eyed Maknae Sungri is like this, <laughs> just this like complete brat. And we get to see him waking Top up by banging pots and pans around. Top himself is variety show gold, showcasing a quick wit and a willingness to be ridiculous. One of the best scenes of that whole Man Want Happiness episode comes after Top experiences a setback in the game. His response is to retreat to the practice room alone, uh, put on a scream mask, and then just kind of dance wildly. It's hilarious, and you cannot script for variety show talent like that. Everyone, tune in to Squid Game 2. It's, yeah, starring Top. It's going to happen. Fall 2024. Big Bang's first promotional cycle hits their final stride with the release of their first full album, Big Bang Volume 1, on December 22, 2006. So this album collected songs from the previous three singles and adds a few new ones, including solo tracks for the remaining two members, Sungri. <laughs> Oh, 
the music video for the album's title track, Dirty Cash, was released on YG's website on January 4th, 2007. Dirty Cash is a social commentary on the corrupting influence of money, delivered with the subtlety of a hammer to the face and built around a crunchy guitar riff looped over a like funky beat. Nah. The video leans into the campiness of the song, showing the group alternatively as a rock band performing on a retro stage set, and as various characters both offering and turning down dirty cash. And it's fun. It's like a fun pop rock song. But the track from European songwriters Andy Love and Jos Jurgensen, I think, um... It's just a bit too Eurovision for Big Bang, and I know there is some fan like fondness for it, but I think it <laughs> it deserves really to have been memory hold, which it it kind of has. It, you never see Dirty Cash like it's Dirty Cash is it's yeah it is what it is. So Big Bang continued to promote this first series of songs well into the spring of 2007, switching from Dirty Cash to Shake It, which was written by G-Dragon and Brave Brothers, and just, it has a much more Big Bang feel to it. Just like that. We get to summer 2007, right? So the Big Bang members are appearing more and more on television, especially Top, who had snagged himself a drama role, along with a nationwide tour hitting all the big regional cities around Korea, and an appearance at the Hollywood Bowl as part of the fifth annual Korea Times Music Festival in Los Angeles. Big Bang's momentum was growing. All they needed to tip them over from Super Rookies to Superstars was a hit song. And that hit song would be released on August 16th, 2007 as part of an EP. Always. Koji Ma, or Lies in English, began as a solo song for G-Dragon, but YG, sensing a hit, had G-Dragon rewrite it as a group song. So Lies was co-written by G-Dragon and Brave Brothers, and 
it starts off with this plaintive piano melody over this like faux vinyl effect. And then in comes this like Shibuya K club beat. And the hook. I'm so sorry, but I love you, Dagochi Mao. Runs throughout the whole thing. I'm so sorry. It's it's a banger. It is a soapy teen banger. Sorry, but I love you, Dagochi Overdramatic regret. The lyrics talk about, you know, walking around with a breakup note crumpled in your pocket. And then JD has a line about, you know, not being used to alcohol, but drinking. <laughs> you know, it's just this very vivid teen imagery. And it's just really, really real. You know, it's just so real. And, you know, it's not just the song, but the video is also incredible. And it tells a dramatic story of how G-Dragon takes the fall for his lady love when she kills her abusive boyfriend while the rest of Big Bang zooms around on rollerblades. And at one point, Top, who is dressed in a neon blue satin bomber jacket and shades for some reason, is getting pushed around in a shopping cart. And yeah, it is amazing. And you should pause the podcast right here to go watch it. Kicking off their second major promotional cycle, Lies wasn't just a new title track. More than six months after their last release, it was a chance to put lessons learned into practice and reset their image. Again, if you remember from part one of the series, from earlier in the episode also, um, one of the big success points of Saltagian Boys was how they switched up their style with every comeback. Big Bang, with their fashion-obsessed leader, G-Dragon, was ready to follow in their footsteps. So gone was the try-hard look of the YG-assigned B2K urban wear and Taeyang's Amarion hair. With lies, 
a Big Bang begin to take the reins, right? They swoop back into this promo cycle on rollerblades, <laughs> dressed in trendy, distressed, skinny jeans and colorful t-shirts, with G-Dragon even sporting a jaunty top knot that is a hairstyle referred to as the Sagwamori, apple hair, that, according to a 2008 article, kicked off such a major trend that one could see young men with apple hair all over Seoul. So Big Bang and Lies, not only did they look cool, but it felt authentic, right? Like they weren't even wearing costumes at all, but this, they, this is just them. Lies was such a massive hit that it won Big Bang their first Psy World Song of the Month awards for both August and September 2007, as well as earning them their first music show win. And then Lies would also go on to win Song of the Year at the Mnet KM Music Festival on November 17, 2007. And Big Bang would also win the award for Best Male Group that year. Just to give a taste of the rapidly changing metrics of success, according to an article from September 4th, 2007, about two weeks after the release of Lies, so EP, always, had sold about 40,000 copies in Korea. A far cry from the days of Gina Shan's 700,000, let alone Sautejian boys, like a million plus sellers, right? But... Lies had taken first place in the rankings that counted in 2007, the Radio Airplay chart, as well as various other online services, Melon, Mnet, Soribada, and SciWorld, as well as Ringtones. How many ringtone downloads does your fave have? Hmm? So with the momentum cresting in Korea, YG announced that Big Bang was going to be starting Japanese promotions, the next step in Big Bang world domination. Interestingly though, YG announced that their first release in Japan was not going to be in Japanese, but in English. This would mark them as foreign artists in Japan, yeah, but not necessarily part of the Hallyu wave. It was a bold strategy from YG, and one that, you know, had an eye to America, where if you remember from the top, YGA Singer 7 had also just been shipped off to, with the goal of eventually debuting. And in 2007, this was something that didn't seem impossible, because Skull from Stony Skunk, you remember them, Ragamuffin, uh, he had just managed to crack the American Billboard R&B charts with his song, Boomdi Boomdi. But as always, trouble was lurking in Big Bang's fantastic world. As Lies was playing on SciWorld pages across the country in anonymous forums, netizens were complaining that Lies had been dot 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 plagiarized. Specifically, netizens were picking out similarities between Lies and a song called Sky High by a Japanese DJ called Free Tempo. And I'll play a little of the both side by side for you here to get a taste of it.
into the details of the 2007 plagiarism accusations, let me pause here to talk about plagiarism more generally because it will come up again in the next episode. Actually, no, let me talk first about pop songwriting. Here is Neil Sadaka from the 2021 Netflix series, This Is Pop, explaining how he wrote his number one hit, Oh Carol, in 1958. He said he liked the Brill Building writers, especially Neil Sedaka, because he was the first to sing his own songs in the late 50s. And it was indeed true. I went to RCA and I played the diary to Steve Scholes, and he said, that should be your first record, the diary. And that was the first one which went to number 22. In those days, number 22 sold 600,000 records. Today, if you sell 10,000 records, you're number one. <laughs> After the diary, I had two flops, and RCA was about to drop me. I went to the charts and looked at all the number one records on Billboard's Hits of the World, and I analyzed it, being a studied musician. The chord progression, the harmonic rhythm, the guitar lifts, the drum breaks, and I put all of the elements together and um, wrote O'Carroll at the Brill Building with Howie Greenfield, and um, it, was, uh, it was an immediate number one. Darling, there will never be another. In other words, pop music songwriting is not done in complete isolation from all outside influences. But a pop music songwriter, especially one still learning the craft, will take apart other songs to see how they work and put the pieces together again, creating something new, something that hits, something that catches the ear of the right audience at the right time. This is essentially what YG had been training G-Dragon to do with his weekly song submissions over the last seven years. Got it? Okay. So when pop fans today especially K-pop fans, talk about plagiarism. 99.9% .9 of the time, it is meant as fodder for a fan war with no deeper understanding of the charges. And the same holds true of the K-pop media. There is an actual legal standard for plagiarism in music, in the United States at least, that involves proving that an, quote, ordinary observer can identify substantial similarities between two songs. This is an imperfect standard, but 
In my experience, most plagiarism accusations weaponized in fan wars don't involve any legal definition, but boil down to the playground taunt of, he's copying me, and are basically just this, but about music. Hey kid, stop wearing your backpack over one shoulder. We invented that. Copycat. Uh, you copied us. Step over this line and say that. I'll kick your butt. Nintendo. One example that you might come across is of two songs using the same sample or signature sound. I played Big Bang's How G at the top of the episode. That song was built around the same sample that Italian electro group Black Machine used in 1992 for their song How G. One for the money, two for the show. We got the party people screaming out. Hey, hey, ho, ho, hey, hey, yo. Let's go. On the north to the break of dawn. I got a mic and I just can't leave it alone. I beat up T-O-P-I. I represent the big bang, big down. Screw me, I bring them like. Down and dirty, you heard me, it's straight cool. People gotta have it, they bring you a let go, huh? Yo, I got it full control. Indeed, I'm out and hide, but me too, they know. I'm psyched, I'm ripping the show. sample came from a popularly sampled song called Soul Power 74, which has been sampled over 100 times according to whosampled.com by everyone from Salt and Peppa to Rex in Effect. The song structure and content of Big Bang's How G is totally different to Black Machine's How G. Is that copying? In context, the sample is used as a nod to a retro style of hip-hop songwriting, which, as we established in the last episode, relies heavily on remixing musical borrowings into something new. Another example, two songs having what one might refer to as a similar vibe. One song eh, kind of reminds you of the other. But as we heard Neil Sadaka explain, breaking down what worked in one hit song and using it to write your own hit song is how pop music songwriting works. And it's extremely prevalent in the high pressure K-pop environment to this day. The process fuels what I call the K-pop trend generator, because what seems to happen is one artist will have a hit off of a sound like Tropical House, and then another act will put out a Tropical House song. And then another act will put out a Tropical House song. And then <laughs> we get more Tropical House until we all get tired of it and move on to the next thing. And the cycle continues. At times, deeply uncreative? Maybe. But should we really care if somebody copies a vibe? 
The entire history of pop music involves copying vibes. That is what pop music is. What matters at the end of the day is making a good song. Arguing about vibes is the stand equivalent of arguing over who came up with wearing your backpack over one shoulder. We all invented it, and nobody did. Just to drive the point home, Ed Sheeran just won a plagiarism case last year that was essentially alleging this kind of vibes similarities in one of Sheeran's songs to a classic Marvin Gaye song. The verdict from the jury, cheered on by many musicians and songwriters, was a no. Sharing vibes is not plagiarism. Are the songs similar? I guess. But it is not a crime to write a song that is similar to another song, as long as it's not substantially similar by the legal definition. And to that point, there are legal scholars who argue that the ordinary observer test is fundamentally flawed because those ordinary observers cannot actually separate musical underpinnings of two works from similar vibes. To quote copyright expert Jimmy Lund, quote, method of performance strongly influences a finding of substantial similarity with two songs that are neither strongly similar or dissimilar, unquote. In other words, vibe similarities are neither an indicator or not indicator of plagiarism. Now, I will link to the Ed Sheeran case in the show notes because I think it's interesting and it's actually right now in the uh, Second Circuit Court of Appeals. But um, just to kind of needle this point, I mean, plagiarism in lyric writing is a lot more straightforward. Get caught copying and pasting other people's lyrics and passing them off as your own. Yeah, okay, that's easy to spot as plagiarism. But should you be allowed to copyright a chord progression? A vibe? Use of the same default synthesizer in Logic? These things are part of a musical vocabulary that, in my opinion, should be freely available for everyone to use. It is our common musical heritage, if you will. So when you hear cries of plagiarism, stop and think, did somebody copy and paste some lyrics? use an uncredited sample as a hook? Or is it simply a case of similar vibes? And keep in mind that some copyright holders, especially the amorphous entities like the Structured Asset Sales LLC, who were the ones who sued Ed Sheeran because that company owns an 11% interest in the royalties of Marvin Gaye's Let's Get It On, are very quick to sue based on vibes. Some musicians accused of plagiarism will sometimes preemptively add the accuser's names to the song credits, even if it's not plagiarism, simply to avoid going to court, because as songwriters from former Beatle George Harrison to Pharrell have found out, you may lose that case. Even as Questlove said about the Blurred Lines lawsuit, quote, there's a thin line, but for the sake of hip-hop culture, look, Technically, it's not plagiarized, unquote. But if the court says it is plagiarism, a verdict coming from those ordinary observers, again, who are easily misled by vibes, and again, who are not musicians, well, if they say it's plagiarism, you'll be out both royalty payments and 
massive legal fees. So sometimes it's easier just to stick a few extra names in the credits. A very advanced kind of patent trolling. George Harrison, that ex-Beatle, was so beaten down by the My Sweet Lord lawsuit that he found it hard to write anything for years afterwards. If a former Beatle can be broken by those accusations, imagine how a young songwriter like G-Dragon, who again was still only 18 when Lies was released, imagine how he felt when faced with media headlines calling him a fake and a fraud. Especially since, if you remember from earlier in the episode, G-Dragon's very first solo song relied heavily on sampling Maroon 5's This Love and was properly credited to the band in the CD booklet and everything, right? So obviously both he and YG Entertainment understood when credit was due. What it looks like from the vantage point of 2024 is that Big Bang's success with lies combined with YG's antagonistic media relations style again, almost certainly a holdover from the Soltagian boys' days, had put a target on Big Bang's backs, and from now on, even the smallest missteps would be blown up online and in the press. Just because those ordinary observer netizens grumbled about alleged plagiarism in online forums, it didn't mean the accusations had to be aired by the mainstream media. That was a choice. So in mid-October 2007, YG himself was forced to respond. On October 17th, 2007, YG issued a statement, translation here by One Time for Your Mind at the YG BB message board. Quote, today after the articles went out, the entertainment managing Free Tempo contacted YG. They told us lie has no problem and is not plagiarized. Also, to add another thought, all the genres of music in this world have uniqueness and the rule of their own. That's how genres are differentiated. Lie is a type of genre that was popular in Japan before, even though the melody is totally different just because the song started off with a piano and how it's quote kind of similar unquote doesn't mean it's plagiarized. Plagiarizing and sampling is a totally different concept. For the last 10 years, YG has been sampling and remaking songs and we've received approval from the original singers when it was necessary, unquote. With YG and free tempo, Cooling the flames. The accusation settled down for the moment and lies continued its successful run. But the media generated scandal was an inauspicious sign of things to come and will come in the next episode. In my opinion, what G Dragon had actually done with lies, with our, you know, club music maestro producer Bray Brothers, was tap into what all of the great pop music songwriters do best pick up on emerging trends, make them their own, and take them mainstream. With Lies, G-Dragon had done exactly that, announcing himself as the next David Bowie or Solteji. Bowie took the vibes of Kraftwerk's automotive-inspired Autobahn and turned it into Station to Station. G-Dragon's Lies took the vibes of Shibuya K lounge music from acts like Harvard, Dashy Dance, and Free Tempo, a vibe that had taken off among trend-forward listeners on Psyworld, and G-Dragon had turned it into his own generation-defining teen anthem. Was G-Dragon inspired by Free Tempo? Yeah, clearly he was. But, like Bowie with Kraftwerk, he'd also reshaped 
that chill should be okay sound into something that had not yet crossed over into K-pop at the time. He turned it into a song and a sound that would hit big with the mainstream Korean listener. Everybody knew lies. As a former teen hipster, I think it's likely that netizens on platforms like SciWorld didn't like hearing their genre of cool lounge music turned into a dramatic teen anthem for screaming fangirls. And, you know, fair enough. I certainly get it. But that doesn't make lies plagiarism. And thankfully, Big Bang and lies emerged from the scandal, the faux scandal, with their reputations more or less intact. Lies sent Big Bang into the upper echelons of K-pop, and by God, they would stay there. Big Bang's next EP, Hot Issue, was released on November 22, 2007. And while it didn't have a generation-defining song like Lies, it did have a tracklist full of bangers, including a song called Crazy Dog, that was heavily promoted as being the first song to officially use a sample from a song written by Seltaiji. Not so subtly furthering YG's claim that G-Dragon was the musical heir to Seltaiji, and again, a claim I am not going to argue with. Last Farewell, the title track from Hot Issue, co-written by G-Dragon and Brave Brothers, is a pulsing, four-on-the-floor, Eurobeat banger, evoking a smoky, sweaty, boozy dance floor at 3.30 in the morning when you've been dancing for so long that it feels like if you stop moving, you will die. Big Bang is back! Most definitely incredible! Hey, more! Beat to the art to the jam! of teen love as Big Bang, collectively, tries to figure out what exactly this hot and cold running girlfriend is trying to tell them. The beat almost seems to tumble forward ahead of the vocals, which really just adds to that, that claustrophobic late night feeling of the song. The video features the members of Big Bang hanging out at a club and providing commentary to a missed connection love story between a cute girl her cinder fellow lover, who was a nerd by day, club hunk by night. Although again, do keep in mind that Sungri at this point is still only 16, and probably should not have been out at the clubs in any capacity, but he wasn't the first underage K-pop idol to be handed adult concepts, and he certainly will not be the last. Style-wise, Last Farewell had the group in what you might call casual winter wear. Puffy vests, windbreakers, G-Dragon in one of those hats with the long ear flaps, and tassels. Last Farewell wasn't the hit that Lies was, but it, it did very well, and it did well enough that it showed that Big Bang did have staying power. 
And so as 2007 ends and as 2008 begins, Big Bang had reached the top of a burgeoning new generation of youthful Korean idol groups. And there was a real excitement swirling around the scene that hadn't been seen really since the days of HOT and Jexies. And as the Lunar New Year approached and spring 2008 was just around the corner, Big Bang would end this run of promotions on a triumphant note, releasing their first Japanese EP in January 2008 for the world, featuring Hao Ji, which I played at the top of the episode, and even winning a Top Artist Award at the Seoul Music Awards and snagging a nomination for Best R&B Song for Full of Tears at the prestigious Korean Music Awards. So we'll send Rookie Big Bang out on this high note, ending part two here, and I will pick up the story next time in part three. So we'll go out today with Fool, which was another G-Dragon and Brave Brothers joint from Hot Issue, and one of my favorites from this early era of Big Bang. Big Bang gonna raise the roof, y'all. Big Bang gonna raise the roof. Love is breaking. I know, girl. We know my situation. Words are broken. Say goodbye. Do something. Sit 
붙잡고 마지막 입세여 떨어지지만 내 손을 잡아요 hey. 